If you have a copy of your scriptures, please turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. We will be studying verses 31 through 34. Some of you showed up this evening hoping that I would preach your particular doctrine and answer some of your questions. I'm here to say that oftentimes in Jeremiah 31, the questions you ask are technically not answered in Jeremiah 31. A lot of grenades and missiles are launched across an aisle for Christians that love each other, demanding Jeremiah say something that Jeremiah did not say. And I'm going to do my best tonight not to put my own thoughts in Jeremiah 31. What was Jeremiah's context? What is he saying? Who is he teaching to? Who is he thinking about as he writes Jeremiah 31? As you have been here for oh, almost 31 chapters now, you've heard a lot of gloom and doom. You've seen pieces of hope, but this, this book is primarily a, a book of judgment because the people Jeremiah is speaking to have left God. They don't want God. They don't want anything to do with God. So God is bringing judgment upon them. And as the Babylonians are at the door, he is writing the book of consolation. So from chapter 30 all the way to 32 is this book of consolation. And you can't just rip 31, 31 through 4 out of his context. And, and so oftentimes we do that. We like to make verses say things that it technically doesn't say. Now I'm not saying what I believe is not in Scripture, I can show you in other places where I clearly think it's there. I wouldn't believe it. But what I'm saying is, God has something to say, and Jeremiah has something to say in its original context. And I pray and hope that I do that well. I hope I do that well. So with that said, let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word. Because at the end of the day, Jeremiah 31 is all about your heart. If you've heard anything, I sound like a the same sermon over and over again. Jeremiah's concerned with the heart. Absolutely. So if you walk out of here and your heart's still hardened, you've missed the point of the new covenant. So let's ask the Lord to give us softened hearts so we can know the Lord more. Father, we come before you and what a great passage of Scripture. First, 29 chapters, chaos. From chapter 33 to 52, we see chaos. But in the middle of this chiastic structure of a book, we see beauty. We see hope. And Father, inside of those chapters, we see the pinnacle, what many would say the pinnacle of Jeremiah, the Romans 8 of Jeremiah, in verses 31 through 34. So Father, we pray, O God, that we would see your message of hope. We would see your Son Christ, that our hearts would be changed, that our hearts would be warmed, that they would not be hardened, that we would not walk away as they did in the wilderness, hardened, not wanting you. So Father, please may this text be preached purely. Father, I pray that they do not hear me. May they hear your Spirit. Please teach your people, O God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And thus sends the reading, the very words of God. My wife will tell you I have a lot of annoying habits. Probably one of the most annoying habits that she has learned to tolerate in these 10 years of marriage is my love, respect, and adoration for Toyota Tacoma trucks. Especially in the 90s all the way to the early 2000s, I just think that was the great, great years of Toyota Tacomas. My, my father came home one day with a 1987 Tacoma and I noticed when we were hunting, it never got stuck in the mud. It never broke down. And everybody was broken down. And I was like, why? And he's like, they're just Tacomas, Travis. They are what they are. They were pickups back in the day. But I had this love for it. And, and you never know. I may just get a wild hair to, to, to buy one and, and get rid of the one I have. I feel that if I fix them up and, and let other people purchase them, that I'm doing a, almost a favor to them, a favor to the world, a favor to the truck. One day... I got rid of a 2004, and I said, I want to get a new one. So I got a 2005. And I brought that truck home, and there's always a reveal when a husband gets a toy or something to show their, their wife, because you always want their approval, right? You're always like a kid, like, I want them to see it. And I bring her outside. I go, look what I got. It's my new truck. And she goes, what is that? It's like half the size of my other truck. There's like only two doors, and... No cruise control. So what is that? Now she didn't mean I've never seen that thing before. She was like, what is this doing in our driveway is what she should have said. Oftentimes we say, what is that? Well, she knew exactly what it was. It was a truck. Could you not see the truck bed and the full wheels and the, and the tires? See, the substance of the truck has never changed from when the truck first came out. I don't know if you understand this or not, but in 1896, a man named Gottlieb Daimler decided, how are we going to get hay from point A to point B? They already had these small little engines, like only six horsepower to move people. And he said, how can I get this hay from point A to point B? And he had this vehicle with the bed in it. And they put stuff in the bed. And from 1896 to the 2024s that are coming out, you know what the substance of a truck is? They have beds, and you can put stuff in it. And it gets you from point A to point B. Even a three-year-old kid can go, that's a truck. They love them, don't they? They love trucks. Truck. They know what a truck is because it's a truck bed. It's the substance of a truck. The substance of God's covenants has always been the same. To get you from point A to point B. 
is grace. Even before Jesus Christ was on earth in human form, God has been saving people. He's been making covenants with people. The substance has never changed. When Adam sinned, what was the covenant? God made a way for human beings to get to point A to point B, to get to heaven, to be with Him forever. To Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and even in the New Covenant, God has made a way to get you from point A to point B to glory. He has given you access through His covenants. It's always been the substance is grace. It's always been Christ. It's all based upon this inter-Trinitarian covenant. And you've got to speak slow when you speak like this because you speak of the Trinity too fast and you become a heretic. So you, you, gotta, you think slowly. But God the Father is planning our salvation. The Son is going to secure it on Calvary and the Spirit will apply it. That happened long before you and I were ever born. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah 31.3, I spent an entire Sunday evening talking about this one verse. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Do you know everlasting is timeless? It not only means like forever that way, but it also means forever before time started. God has loved his people. God is a God of love. And he made this inter-Trinitarian decision, covenant within the Godhead, that he would make access to his holiness and his goodness and his being through Jesus Christ. And from that time forward, the substance has never changed. What you will hear this evening is going to be grace, the same way Adam preached his sons. Grace, we sin, we need salvation. And God has provided a way for us to be with him. Substance hasn't changed. But man, those forms have changed. And we praise the Lord for his changed forms. And if you're taking notes, there's a lot of ways that you cut this up. Let's do five. Five sounds good. First thing you want to see is the parties of the new covenant. Persons are parties. Two, reason for the new covenant. Three, the internal focus of the new covenant. Four, the external focus of the new covenant. And five, the finality of the new covenant. The parties... The reason, the internal focus, the external focus, and the finality of the new covenant. And as we look at the parties of the new covenant, there's always parties involved in the covenant. You've probably seen the movies and the books where, you know, a, a bride is about to make a covenant with the groom, and all of a sudden the groom gets cold feet, and she goes off, and she's like, I found the real love of my life now, right? It's the same thing over and over and over again, no matter what movie's being told. It's like, you got to have people there to make a covenant. As messed up as our country is, you can't marry yourself. They at least understand that for now. You have to have parties involved in a covenant. There's got to be people involved. And throughout scriptures, there's always people involved in this covenant. Parties and, and conditions and signs. And what do we see in this passage? Who were the people that God makes the covenant with. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If you are hearing Jeremiah preach this sermon, 
you're thinking, Jeremiah, Israel doesn't exist. They don't exist. As a matter of fact, if you understand the history of Israel, David was the great king and united the kingdom. We call it the United Kingdom because they were all on board. Yay! One king! We love David. He has a son named Solomon. Solomon sins, has a lot of wives, loves their gods. Not very good. He was supposed to serve Yahweh. And the kingdom split. Northern Israel had ten tribes. The southern part of Israel just had Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites. And the Assyrian army comes and not only do they take away the ten tribes, we call them the lost tribes of Israel, they try to eradicate their bloodlines. You ever notice that there's Spanish Jews and Puerto Rican Jews and African Jews all around the world who claim they have some type of Jewish blood in them? You heard me say this before, where there's smoke, there's fire. They're, they're all over. And when Jeremiah is preaching this, the question is, Wait a minute. How can God create Jews out of nothing? Some of you have read your New Testament and you go, Travis, that's good. I see where you're going with that. We understand what happens. We understand how the ten lost tribes come together with Judah. See, Paul will tell us there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what this new covenant does, Jeremiah is saying, watch what God does. The days are coming when there will be no longer Jew nor Greek. I will re reunite you. You'll have one king again, which is King David. And Paul actually says in Romans 9, what you and I would be thinking if we were Jews. Well, did this fail? Does God not love the Jews anymore? He says that Jews, right? That is, they which are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Meaning this, if you have the faith of Abraham, then you're a Jew like Abraham. Because the promise did not come through his flesh and blood, Ishmael. It came through, as the pastor said this morning, what? The child of the promise, Isaac. So it's all about believing the promises. It's all about trusting in that seed, which is Christ. And what is God doing? He's declaring that he's making a new covenant with the house of Israel and the Judah. He's bringing us all together. He's grafting us in. And he's saying there's one Christ, who will be king of all. And if you're a Jew and you're hearing that, you don't understand it fully. How can God make children of Abraham out of nothing? Jesus says, watch what he does. Watch what he does. And you and I now sit reading the book of Jeremiah saying, those are our promises. We read Genesis and go, that was us. We read the Israelites coming through the wilderness and we're like, we know what it's like too. We read the scriptures and we can put ourselves in there. Be Why? Because there's one Savior. Because He's united the children of Israel and the house of Judah. Which brings us to the second point of our sermon, the reason for a new covenant. 
Just so you know, the old covenant wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Anytime God's laws are proclaimed, they're good. They're good and perfect. God knows exactly what right from wrong is. But we see in verse 32, not like the covenant. This covenant will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. It wasn't the problem with the law. The problem was their hearts. Remember what Paul says. You've got to read covenants through Paul and through Peter, through the apostles and whoever wrote Hebrews. Paul says what the law could not do because you were weak in the flesh, God had to do. The problem is never God's holy and righteous laws. The problem is always your heart. It's always been our heart. It's not a coincidence that God put Abraham to sleep when he made that covenant. Abraham tried to fix the covenant on his own, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this in the flesh and well, you get Ishmael, right? It, it can't be done in the flesh. Abraham had to be put to sleep. Trust me, the old covenant is obsolete because of what? Your inability. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. And if you read the book of Hebrews, chapter 8 specifically, it quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's the largest quote in the New Testament. And it's actually from Jeremiah 31. The largest quote in the entire New Testament from the Old Testament is Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8. And he quotes the entire thing. He uses from the Septuagint. So the wording is just a hair different, but it's, but it's super accurate. And he says that he finds fault with the Old Covenant. Why? Because of your heart. Your inability to keep it. And then in verse 13 he says, he makes the first covenant obsolete. When I was in high school, I would have to run to the store, and my mom's listening to this, I'm just, she's going to have to know, I would sneak off and use the payphone. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. You millennials are like, what? You paid for a phone call? Yeah, You would actually have to leave your house because somebody else was on the phone all the time or your dad's like, no, get off the phone. Somebody may call because he wouldn't pay the dollar extra for call waiting. Right? Go! So I'd, I'd go to the store and I'm like, I'm sneaking off. No, I didn't go do anything wrong. I snuck off and used that pay phone and called my friends. That's what I did. Because when I deliver pizzas, I get changed. I'm like, that's my, that's my phone. I'm going to call people. Payphones are obsolete, aren't they? They're about useless. Now somebody said, well, they still exist. You can see them. Yeah, there was a time where the temple still existed. But when the writer of Hebrews wrote it, he says, listen, they're obsolete anymore. It doesn't matter if you use the payphone. That's stupid. Why would you? It makes no sense to use a payphone. The old covenant law in the sense of sacrifice, in the sense of priest, is obsolete. And the problem with it was always your heart. Have you noticed that when God enters into covenant with man, man seems to break it? It's almost as if God has to say, you know what? 
if I don't do something, you are going to break this covenant. This is constantly what takes place. You ever think about how long it took Adam to break the covenant? I want you to think about this passage here. It says, It's not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. My covenant they broke. Edward Donnelly would say, the Northern Irishman would say, the dust in the grooves were still there in the Ten Commandments. He just gets down the mountain and they're already worshiping a golden calf. Which made me think, well, wonder how long it took Adam. I don't think it took him long. It doesn't take us long to break covenant with God. And the reality is, is they were already in a loving relationship with God. Do you, do you see, though I was their husband, if you think the old covenant law, do this and live, keep this would earn their salvation, you've missed the point. He already loved them. He was already their husband. You missed the point completely. The point is, God wants you to love Him out of your heart. He wants you to live differently. He wants you to know Him differently. And because you couldn't, He's going to do something amazing. Which brings us to the third part of the sermon, the internal focus of the covenant. This is what will be different from the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was great. God's law is great. His Ten Commandments are great. We should still keep them. The problem was our hearts, which brings us to verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with them, the house of Israel after those days. Once again, combined, right? The house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, do you remember the context of Jeremiah? Do you remember when Jeremiah started his ministry, what took place? King Josiah. Do you remember King Josiah? King Josiah was eight years old when he took the throne. His wicked father, if I'm not skipping someone right, was Manasseh and Manasseh was super evil, though he, he tried to get right, but never really worked. The whole entire kingdom was not living for the Lord. And a man named Hilkiah, which, interesting, is the same name as Jeremiah's dad. I don't think they're related, but maybe, I don't know, it's going to be interesting. He finds the law of God, and he goes to King Josiah and says, here's the law of God. And Josiah loves Yahweh, loves God. Loves him with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, I don't care what it takes. Judah will worship God. And he gets the law in everyone's house. He implements the law. He makes them do what they're supposed to do. As a matter of fact, now everyone knows the law of God. But you know, Jeremiah said it never made it to their heart. If you think writing the law on someone's heart is knowledge, you miss the point. As a matter of fact, Paul makes it very clear. In Romans 2, Paul helps us here. Because Paul says, even if a Gentile who doesn't have the law of God 
keeps the law of God, what is he proving? Romans 2, 15, they show the work of the law is written on their heart, while their consciences also bear witness. Meaning when people do right, they show you the law is written on their heart in the first place. I thought about prisoners. Though it's warped, they even have views of right and wrong. Gentile pagans, you go to a, a nation that's, that's never heard the Bible, they have right from wrong. They know when a line is crossed. Why? Because the law is on hearts. So what is Jeremiah saying here? It wasn't a lack of knowledge. The problem, once again, was their hearts. If you remember Jeremiah 17, verse 1, he says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. What was on their hearts? They knew the law of God, but they didn't want to keep it. As a matter of fact, they knew it so well, they tried to manipulate it. Well, the law of God says we have to go to temple. So they gather their family up to go to temple, and they would go. But at the temple, they had horns of false gods on the temple. Then they would go home and make a sacrifice to another false god just in case he was true too. They're hedging their bets, right? Well, just in case that God's right, we'll keep that one. And just in case that God's right, let's worship all the gods. Jeremiah said the land was so polluted with idols, that's what your kids will remember when they get to Babylon. Idolatrous worship. Even to the point where they did this inside of the temple. What Jeremiah is saying here is, I will give you a new heart. The same thing Ezekiel says. And put a new spirit within you. He's speaking what Moses said in Deuteronomy. Do you know how frustrated Moses was with the people? Like, can y'all not just do what God tells you to do? Why do you keep sinning? And what did he say in Deuteronomy 30? The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. There's coming a day. This is Moses. This isn't Jeremiah, not Ezekiel. This is Moses saying, you people can't keep what God is telling you to do. And there's coming a day when your heart will be changed. And the law of God has been about the heart. Do, do you remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? Let me tell you what people were doing in the days of Jeremiah. I didn't cheat on my wife. I mean, I just went window shopping, right? Have you heard men say that around the golf course? And what did Jesus say? Well, Jesus says that if you look at a woman in lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Matters very little what the action was. But see, you have heard it said, and this is what, they, well, as long as you don't do anything bad, you're not that off. It's not that bad. Or what about hate? I mean, I mean, I just talk trash to that person. I can't stand them. Jesus says, oh, you don't think you've committed murder? If you're angry with your brother or sister, you will be subject to judgment. See, it just wasn't about checking a box. It was about your heart. And what Jeremiah is saying is there's coming a day when the Spirit will do something inside of your heart 
to the point where instead of you trying to manipulate the law, trying to manipulate God and use Him, you'll just love Him. You'll love the law. You'll love doing what's right. You'll love people. There's coming a day where your heart will be changed. One theologian says, obeying will be as normal and as readily accepted as breathing and eating. Oh, they knew the law, but they're just checking a box. You know what the word for that is? shared it with you three weeks ago on a Sunday morning when I preached the same sermon using Roman 8, by the way. It's called hypocrisy. Behavior that contradicts what one claims to believe or feel. Doing something just out of the motion. God doesn't want your hypocrisy. He wants your heart. And let's just be honest. The church is full of people who just check boxes. Baptist church, Methodist church, Presbyterian church, people who are just going through the motions. God says, I don't need you to go through the motions. I want your heart. God has given us access to Him. And He wants us to worship Him and love Him and enjoy Him. Which brings us to the fourth part of this sermon, this external teaching of the covenant. When I think about this external teaching and this external process of the covenant, it made me think about a puzzle. I like puzzles. I've always enjoyed doing puzzles. But you know how frustrating it is to do a puzzle when you don't know what the finished product looks like? Could you imagine going, we're going to put a puzzle together, and you're like, I don't even know what we're looking at. That would be very frustrating. The people in Jeremiah's day had only the puzzle pieces. They, they didn't know the big picture. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't know how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. As a matter of Calvin would say that God kept them in rudiments of knowledge like little children. They didn't have as much information. They didn't see the finished product. They just had puzzle pieces and they're trying to put them together. Which makes us think of verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. They didn't really understand what was going on if it wasn't for a priest. They needed that priest. They needed that mediator. They lived in types and shadows. They had priests and they had prophets. And they would go like, I'd like to know more about God. Well, well, let me tell you more about God, the priest would say. Let me check and see if you're okay. They were just reading the, the blueprints, but they didn't know the finished product. Calvin would say, that what Jeremiah is showing us is that superior brightness of the gospel light is better. And God under the law did so perfectly teach His people, but He did not teach them like He teaches us today. Yes, they had some light, but they didn't have it all. Jesus would go on and say this in Luke 10. Do you remember the 72 disciples? They go out and the, the demons are listening to them and they're like, the demons listen to us. And Jesus says, listen, you just be happy that your name is written in the book of life. And then he privately goes to his inner group, the inner disciples, and he says this to them. 
Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you see, but did not hear it. Calvin said they didn't have as much light as we have. They needed these types and shadows. They needed the priests. They needed people to tell them what was going on. If a poor pagan, Gentile, wanted to know God, he had to stop in the court of the Gentiles, did he not? He couldn't make it all the way to the court of the Jews, and he sure wasn't getting close to the Holy of Holies. He was constantly peeking in. I want to know more. I want to know more. See, when someone sinned, they had to go to the priest. And what did the priest say? Are you clean or unclean? Let me check you out. Well, you can't go to temple today. Sorry, you're unclean. Sally, same thing. Wait a week. You won't need the teacher of the law soon. Jeremiah is saying there's coming a day when the high priest will make you clean. There's a different approach. You'll be able to approach God in a different way. You won't need a priest checker to see if you're clean or not. You won't need the teacher. O. Palmer Robertson in Christ of the Covenant said this, the most natural interpretation in context to this one passage of the New Covenant situation would be in which the need for people to mediate the covenant would disappear. No more need for a teacher to teach you and mediate the covenant. As a matter of fact, Moses is called the great teacher. Deuteronomy 4, he's a teacher. But under the new covenant, no mediator would be necessary for the communication of the will of God to his people. From the smallest to the greatest, all would know the Lord immediately. There's one mediator, and his name is Jesus Christ. You don't need me to teach you how to get to God. Now, I could preach it, but I'm not going to God for you. As a matter of fact, we're not wrong. You have to personally put your faith in Christ. You personally have to eat the bread. You personally have to drink the blood of the covenant and believe. You have to ask forgiveness for your sins. You have to do those things. You have to know God. The great teacher of the laws, the priest, that system doesn't work. You will go to God. There will be no more need for the teacher, which is the law, from the least of them to the greatest. Which means you could be an infant. Your infant right now could be regenerated. We don't know. John the Baptist was in the womb. And I guarantee you they don't know as much as the Bible as you know. But they could be that great. And some of the greatest professors in the world with PhDs could be the least in the kingdom and not even get there and perish because they don't have the faith. They're still trusting in external means instead of trusting in the Christ that has provided us a way. Remember Moses? They said, Moses, don't let God speak to us. You speak to God for us. No, there's coming a day where you're going to go straight to God. You're going to bypass the wicked priest that Jeremiah has been preaching about for 20 chapters, right? You're going to bypass them. They do nothing but tell you lies and wickedness. There's coming a day where you're going to go straight to the source. You're going to go straight to Christ. We live in those days where we go straight to God. We have access to God and we go to Him boldly. Which brings us to the fifth part of this sermon. 
which is the finality of the new covenant. Jeremiah is writing at a time where covenant curses were being poured out. If you don't understand how wicked Judah was, you, you won't understand Jeremiah 31. They were so wicked that they reinstituted child sacrifice. They literally took kids to this God who held his hands out and there was fire coming out of this false idol and they would drop their kids in. And the reason they had drums is so it could drown out the weeping of the mom. They did this. And God says, how dare you? You know I never commanded this. This is how wicked they were. Idols were everywhere. Child sacrifice. They didn't care about Yahweh at all. So God gives them a bill of divorce. Jeremiah 2, God says, you know what? I'm your husband, but because of your covenant unfaithfulness, I am giving you a bill of divorce. And here's what I'm going to do. The Babylonian army is going to come. They're going to destroy your city, destroy your temple. They're going to take you back into Babylon. And the covenant curses of God are being poured out upon them when he's writing this. God is literally remembering their sins. Now read with me. Verse 34, the last sentence. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins. Covenant curses being poured out. God is remembering everything they did and He is judging them for it. He is screaming. Jeremiah is saying there's coming a day where your judgment will finally be taken care of. There's going to come a day where God says, you know what? Yes! Their sin was judged. See, God just doesn't arbitrarily forgive sin willy-nilly. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He, he puts your punishment, your curses upon Christ. That is how he is the just and the justifier of those who have faith. He's saying there's coming a time where God's not going to remember your sin anymore. Because every time you sin, he looks at Jesus. That's my son. I've already poured out my wrath on my son. I don't have to remember that sin anymore. The final sacrifice has been made. Do you remember what Hebrews 10 says? Verse 11, Day after day, priests stand and performs religious duties. Again and again and again and again, they make these sacrifices of bulls and goats. And then every day. Why? Because you sin every day. Every day they kept doing this and doing this and doing this. Jesus comes and he shuts all that down. Never again. And if you can't understand the cataclysmic change in a form, then you haven't read the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament was all about the blood of bulls and goats. It was bloody. Read Leviticus. It was blood everywhere. Blood, well, what do you think they were washing their hands? It wasn't just a ceremony. If you ever got an animal before when you're hunting, I probably shouldn't be talking about that. It's bloody. They're washing their hands. There's so much washing. It's just, they're like, whoa. 
Why? Because of sin. Every day, every day, every day. But by one sacrifice, He has made perfect those who are being made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. And where these sins have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. You can't go back. The writer of Hebrews says you can't go back, and Jeremiah is saying there's coming a day where there will be one way and one way only, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. If you come here today looking for salvation in any other way than Jesus Christ, you will perish. But the beauty of this passage is that sins won't be remembered no more. God looks at us sinners and says, you know what? Come here. I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're just not. You're, you're royalty now. You're in union with Christ. You're in union with the Son. This is the finality of Christ. As the covenant curses are being poured out, and God is remembering all their sin, Jeremiah says, there's going to come a day you won't have to worry about the temple. There's coming a day where God won't remember your sins ever again. As we close, some of you may not know the name of our church, so let me help you. It's called New Covenant Presbyterian. And you may wonder, well, how did you get your name? Well, anytime a church planter plants the church, it's kind of his desire to choose the name. And you may not know why he chose the name, but the reason the name was chosen is because a lot of people accuse Presbyterians of denying the New Covenant. I don't know if you know that or not, because we believe in one covenant of grace, one truck, right? One truck bed, substance from the... It's always been a truck bed, right? There's always been a bed of a truck. I don't care if you call it a Baja Super made a little truck, but it's a truck. It's always been God's grace to get us from point A to point B. Access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And they're saying, oh, you deny. We don't deny the new covenant. We love it. Because when you come to church here, we don't make a sacrifice. There's a table and you have a meal. We don't have priests here. We have pastors who shepherd your soul. We love the new covenant. When we read the law of God, we are so excited to hear that assurance of pardon. And if we don't get assurance of pardon, we're mad. We're like, you can't just tell me I'm a sinner. You better tell me the good news too. That there's the blood of Jesus that saves me. And we have people that love the law of God. We want to please God. We believe that the Spirit has changed us to the point where we want to please God. We don't want to just check a box. Our hearts are warmed when we hear the gospel. We believe in the new covenant and we're thankful for what God has done. And my prayer is that if you want to boil down Jeremiah's message, it's the same message we hear in Hebrews 4. Do not harden your heart in the wilderness. Don't harden your heart. Let the gospel warm your heart. Love God. Don't just check a box. Love Him because of the grace He has given you. Love Him because of the sacrifice. Love Him because He wants you to worship Him and glory in Him and love Him too. That's the heart of the new covenant. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the Word.